This evening, like we've said, we're continuing on through the Belgic Confession. So that was on page 851 in the same in your Psalter hymnal, if you'd like to turn there. Be looking at Article 34. Your bulletin, it says paragraphs one through eight. I think I was looking at a different translation. I'm actually reading here the um, sixth paragraph. Yeah, six. <laughs> so I'll, I'll go ahead and read this. Um, in two weeks, I guess, next week is a holiday, right, or civic holiday weekend. And so in two weeks, then we'll finish off uh, the rest of the article 34. So for now, just the, about the first half. We believe and confess that Jesus Christ, in whom the law is fulfilled, has by his shed blood put an end to every other shedding of blood which anyone might do or wish to do in order to atone or satisfy for sin. Having abolished circumcision, which was done with blood, he established in its place the sacrament of baptism. By it we are received into God's church and set apart from all other people and alien religions, that we may be dedicated entirely to him, bearing his mark and sign. It also witnesses to us that he will be our God forever, since he is our gracious Father. Therefore, he has commanded that all those who belong to him be baptized with pure water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In this way, he signifies to us that just as water washes away the dirt of the body when it's poured on us and is also and also is seen on the baptized on the body of the baptized when it's sprinkled on him, so too the blood of Christ does the same thing internally in the soul by the Holy Spirit. It washes and cleanses it from its sins and transforms us from being the children of wrath into the children of God. This does not happen by the physical water, but by the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God, who is our Red Sea, through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, who is the devil, and to enter the spiritual land of Canaan. So ministers, as far as their work is concerned, give us the sacrament and what is visible. But our Lord gives us what the sacrament signifies, namely the invisible gifts and graces, washing, purifying, and cleansing our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving us true assurance of his fatherly goodness, clothing us with the new man and stripping off the old with all its works. We'll stop there for tonight. Let's join our hearts now in a prayer for illumination. O gracious God and most merciful Father, you have given us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word. Assist us with your spirit that it may be written on our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to your own image, to build us up into the perfect building of Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Our scripture reading to help us along this evening is from the book of Colossians. It's one of those small little letters in the New Testament. Colossians 
have one of these large print Bibles, it will be on uh, page 1833. Anyways, Colossians 2, I'll read verses 9 through 15. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The word of the Lord. children's story, The Velveteen Rabbit, we meet a new stuffed rabbit, who, after being played with for a few hours, is forgotten and set aside by the young boy in the story. It's Christmas season. The young boy quickly moves on to the newer, cooler, mechanical toys, a wind-up soldier, a car that moves on its own. The Velveteen Rabbit is sad. He fears he'll never be real like those mechanical toys that can move. But a wise old stuffed horse tells the Velveteen Rabbit, well, real isn't how you are made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just plays with you, but really loves you, then you become real. The rabbit asks the horse, does it hurt? Well, sometimes. Well, when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. The horse describes to the rabbit how he might expect to lose most of its fur or an eye or some whiskers and stuffing. He would likely become shabby and ugly by the time he became real. But the horse says, once you become real, you can't become unreal. It lasts for always. The rabbit sighs. He thought it would be a long time before this magic happened to him. He didn't really like the idea of all the unpleasantries that come along with it. He wished to become real without these uncomfortable things happening to him. Well, if you've ever read this story, you might remember that the rabbit does eventually lose his whiskers. The pink lining of his ears turn gray. He loses his shape. He barely even looks like a bunny anymore. But that's because after all those mechanical toys had broken or lost their appeal, the young boy picked up the rabbit and carried him everywhere. The young boy loved this rabbit. Like the horse had warned the bunny, it sometimes hurt, but the rabbit didn't mind because he was really, really loved. The boy had made him real or alive by his love. It's a nice bedtime story. What does that have to do with baptism? 
When my professor, David Rylersdam, read this story to his youngest child, Simon, at only the age of five, Simon said to his dad, well, it's kind of like baptism, isn't it, dad? Rylersdam recalls that he didn't make that connection himself, so he asked Simon, what do you mean? And Simon said, well, at our baptism, God loves us so we can have new life. Now, many of us know one or two primary meanings of baptism. We think of either cleansing from sin or some kind of incorporation into the family of God. Simon's observations about the velveteen rabbit help us to see baptism in a new light. We can hold up this sacrament to the light like a precious jewel or something and turn it around in our hands to allow us the light to show us a different facet of truth or a different image that perhaps we hadn't noticed before. Well, baptism does have to do with the washing away of sin. It also has to do with community membership, with illumination, rebirth, new creation. It's packed with meaning. Its symbolism is so loaded with meaning that theologians have tied just about every passage in the Bible that mentions water. They have somehow tied it back the sacrament of baptism. Well, for example, baptism sermons and art about baptism often portray uh, Jesus healing the lame man who had no one to dip him in the pool of Bethesda. Well, the earliest surviving church from the third century in Syria has a painting of this lame man's healing in its baptismal room. And of course, in our Belgic confession, Debray makes a connection between baptism and the Exodus, the Red Sea, the Promised Land. The Belgic confession helps us to hold up this sacrament to the light again, like some kind of precious jewel or something. We turn it over in our hands, it allows the light to show us a different facet of truth, or maybe an image we haven't noticed before. Connection Debray makes to the Red Sea is a natural connection. It has to do with passing into a new life, a kind of rebirth or second birthday. Now, obviously, the Red Sea is water. Water imagery pretty easily transfers into baptism imagery. But then what's all this talk about blood? <clears throat> baptism, after all, involves water, not blood, right? I'm currently a student at Emmanuel College in the University of Toronto. That's a theological school that's associated with the uh, United Church of Canada. So there's a lot of different perspectives there that I didn't necessarily get at, say, Kuiper College or Calvin Seminary. I recall one of my first years overhearing a conversation between two Emmanuel students. They were talking about this kind of language of blood. One said to the other, I don't... I don't get why evangelicals are always talking about blood. It's gross. The other student agreed. She had been to the Calvin Symposium on Worship. And she said a couple years ago when I was at this symposium, they were always talking about Jesus' blood. I don't get it. It's so violent and disgusting. Now, I don't mean to be making any comments here about those students or about their denomination. It just struck me at the time that certainly from outside our tradition, it seems odd to have this theology wrapped around someone's blood. 
Never mind all the language about circumcision. Well, Neil Planinga helps to explain a bit what's going on with this language of blood and circumcision. He writes, Debray stands in an old tradition of those who see the letting of blood as the important thing in circumcision. Circumcision is thus regarded as a bloody sacrifice, a bloody cutting away or stripping off of flesh. It's a symbol of cutting away the guilt and pollution of sin. So circumcision is part of the old ceremonial scheme of propitiation or of satisfaction for sin, which Christ has ended by sacrificing his own blood. Still, I mean, what's the connection to baptism? Baptism has to do with water, not blood, right? Well, this is where Colossians helps us. We read from Colossians 2. It says, In Christ you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Christ's sacrificial death and the letting of his blood was a kind of large-scale circumcision, the writer says. He put off or gave up his whole body of flesh. But then he was made alive. He put off the old man and put on the new, so to speak. So baptism is a sign of the union we have with Christ in these events. Paul writes in Romans 6, We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the key to the whole Reformed understanding of baptism is the idea of covenant. Again, Planinga is helpful here. Covenant links the old and the new sacraments. That's the circumcision and baptism, the blood and the water. Covenant also links old Israel and new Israel, even old people and young people, all within a context of grace. So what circumcision was to the old Israel, baptism is to the church, the new Israel. In either case, Debray emphasizes the promises that God makes are the same. The promises involve washing, renewal, fatherly comfort, and newness of life. These are all comprehended under the general promise that God will be our gracious God and Father forever. So this talk of blood and circumcision might at first strike us or others as odd, or violence maybe a little gross. But these images point us to God's covenant, which is now shown to us in the water of baptism. This is a covenant of grace. It is, foremost, a blessing for God's people. It's interesting to me that, again, after all this imagery of blood and the Red Sea and the Promised Land, Debray again holds up this sacrament to the light. 
He turns it in his hand to show us a kaleidoscope of invisible gifts and graces that baptism signifies. It doesn't just signify one thing, but a whole plurality of graces, the washing, purifying, and cleansing our souls of filth and unrighteousness, renewing our hearts and filling them with comfort, giving us true assurance of his fatherly goodness, clothing us with a new self, stripping off the old self with its practices. Now in a couple weeks, we'll hear about the rest of this article and the ways that he draws distinction between a reformed understanding of baptism and a, and a Baptist understanding. The article kind of takes a polemic turn toward the end. There are certainly good historical reasons for that. And still today, we can find numerous occasions where it's appropriate to defend a reformed understanding of baptism, like if someone wants to be rebaptized or if someone thinks it's morally wrong for us to baptize infants. But we should not engage in those conversations in order to turn our understanding of baptism into a kind of weapon or dividing wall against other believers. We ought to remember, of course, that baptism is first a blessing from God, not a point of doctrine to argue over. Now, the novelist Marilyn Robinson seems to define the action of the sacraments primarily as an action of blessing throughout her writing. But baptism and blessing come together in a lighthearted passage from her novel Gilead. Gilead is a fictional memoir of an elderly Reverend John Ames. She's writing for his seven-year-old son. Reverend Ames writes about his childhood. He says, we were very pious children from pious households in a fairly pious town, and this affected our behavior considerably. Once, we baptized a litter of cats. They were dusty little barn cats, just steady on their legs, the kind of creatures that live their anonymous lives, keeping the mice down, have no interest in humans at all except to avoid them. But the animals all seemed to start out sociable, so we were always pleased to find new kittens prowling out of whatever cranny their mother had tried to hide them in, as ready to play as we were. It occurred to one of the girls to swaddle them up in a doll's dress. There was only one dress, which was just as well since the cats could hardly tolerate a moment in it, and would have to have been unswaddled as soon as they were christened in any case. I myself moistened their brows, repeating the full Trinitarian formula. Their grim, old, crooked-tailed mother found us baptizing away by the creek and began carrying her babies off by the napes of their neck, one and then another. We lost track of which was which, but we were fairly sure that some of the creatures had been borne away still in the darkness of paganism, and that worried us a good deal. Finally, I asked my father, in the most offhand way imaginable, what exactly would happen to a cat if one were to say, baptize it. He replied that the sacraments must always be treated and regarded with the greatest respect. Well, that wasn't really an answer to my question. We did respect the sacraments, but we thought the whole world of those cats I got his meaning, though, and did no more baptizing until I was ordained. Still, I remember how those warm little brows felt under the palm of my hand 
everyone has petted a cat. But to touch one like that with the pure intention of blessing it, well, that is a different feeling. It's, of course, a silly little story, but it communicates something of what baptism signifies. It is, foremost, a blessing. I myself have never baptized anyone, but I have a number of friends who are recent pastors, so they can recall their first baptisms with great clarity, and their memories read like a Marilyn Robinson novel. They might say, I still remember how that warm little head felt under the palm of my hand. I've held babies before, of course, but to touch one like that with the pure intention of blessing it, well, that is a very different thing. The ministers, Debray says, as far as their work is concerned, give us the sacrament and what is visible. But of course, the minister cannot make this blessing effectual in the life of the baptized. Well, that's the work of God. The Lord gives us what the sacrament signifies. The Lord washes, purifies, and cleanses our souls. The Lord renews our hearts and fills them with comfort. The Lord assures us of his fatherly goodness. And it is the Lord who clothes us with new life and takes off our old life with its practices. Now this last point that I read from the Belgic Confession about the Old South and the New South, that comes from Colossians 3. It's just a few paragraphs after the scripture I read from Colossians 2. Now one of the main themes of the whole book of Colossians is this idea of being united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. So we have an old self that has died with Christ and a new self that is now ours because of Christ's resurrection. Now this is based on the belief that the resurrection of Christ was an event through which God changed the power structures within history. So baptism seals believers' involvement in this event. Through faith and baptism, believers are linked with the life of this new resurrection power. The resurrection power of God now breaks the power of sin and the hold of death on our lives. So in the end, it is maybe not so different from the connection little Simon Ryler Sam made between the Velveteen Rabbit and baptism. The horse describes how the rabbit might expect to lose some of his fur and eyes, some whiskers and stuffing. And in the language of Colossians and the Belgic Confession, the Lord strips off from us the old self with its practices. This is what it means to be united with Christ in his death. But just as Christ was raised, so too we are given new life. The Lord clothes us with the new self, says Guido de Bray. And the rabbit is made real because of the little boy's love. At our baptism, God tells us he loves us so we can have a new life. So sisters and brothers in Christ, we have this gem before us, the sacrament of baptism. It is a multifaceted, image-laden gift from God. And it has to do with many things, with God's love, with new life, 
dying with Christ, being cleansed, purified, comforted, blessed, and ultimately being united with the one who was buried in death and raised to newness of life. Thanks be to God for this good gift. Let's pray. Lord our God, ever faithful to your promise, we thank you for assuring us again that you will forgive us and receive us as children in Christ. Grant us wisdom and love as we carry out the vows we have made in baptism. We pray that you will guide us throughout our lives. Enable us to continually respond in faith to the gospel. Fill us with your spirit and make our lives fruitful. Give us strength to endure trials. And when Christ returns, let us celebrate with all the people of God your greatness and goodness forever and the joy of your new creation. Amen.